Now we're going to turn our attention to the Word, the Bible, and uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, every week we have the scripture read, and once a month we have the scripture read in another language. And we do this because around the throne of heaven is every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And so we celebrate that as a church that God is working all over the globe today. We're just one gathering of the billions of gatherings all over the globe. And uh, today we're going to be having Rowena read the scripture in Portuguese. So would you please come forward? Let's please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And for those of you who are reading from our Bibles around the room, the page is 810. After I read, we'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And we all say, thanks be to God. And why do we say that? We say that because we want to show our gratitude for the word that God gave us, his powerful message. Vocês são o sal da terra, mas se o sal perder o seu sabor, como restaurá-lo? Não servirá para nada, exceto para ser jogado fora e pisado pelos homens. Vocês são o sal, a luz do mundo. Não se pode esconder uma cidade construída sobre um monte e também ninguém acende uma candeia e a coloca debaixo de uma vasilha. Ao contrário, colocá-la-á no lugar apropriado e assim ilumina a todos que estão na casa. Assim brilhe a luz de vocês diante dos homens para que vejam as suas boas obras e glorifiquem ao vosso Pai que está nos céus. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we pray that our minds, our ears, and our hearts be open to the message that God has here for us. May we allow ourselves to be permeated by the Holy Spirit's soft whisper as we listen. May we take the necessary decisions to put this message into practice be it anew or in a renewed way. We trust in God's mighty word to steer our souls into bringing to life the two key statements that are in this passage. Being the salt and the light of the world. May we be intentionally attentive to what today's preacher has for us. We pray for Tyler to be anointed as he expands the message for us. We trust that you will take over our beings, Lord, into who we are as you declare, the salt and the light. We pray all this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That was beautiful, right? So awesome. All right. Well, today we have a gift for us as a church. Uh, The Bible says that we're to train up um, young men to preach the gospel, and that's what we're doing. Uh, This is Tyler. We call him T-Mac. 
He is one of our deacons, and today he's preaching his first sermon to a congregation. So um, he's going to be preaching the word to us today. So let's pray for him real quick as, as Rona just prayed, Father Phil Tyler, and uh, bless us this time. Amen. Some theologians have said that Sunday morning gatherings are where we experience heaven on earth. And how true is that when other languages are spoken? Praise God. So just a little bit about myself. I'm Tyler. Um, Kyle said I was a deacon, and I'm a elder in training. I'm also a husband. I've been married to my wife for five years now. And then, uh, <laughs> it's not, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> we have, I'm also a father. We have two children. I have a two-year-old, Reagan, who is an insane little person. But big personality, she's this tall, okay? Uh, and then we have AJ, who's a month old. And now AJ, I'm a little skeptical of. I don't really know him. He's a stranger in our house. He's only been around a month, so I'm kind of wishy-washy about him. Uh, I kind of feel uncomfortable leaving, going to work, leaving my family at home with a stranger. Um, but I do it. And I don't know if I were going to... I and... Yeah, I don't know. They like him. We'll probably keep him. I'm out, outnumbered there, outvoted. <laughs> So with all that, I'm a deacon, so I'm here to serve you as a church. I'm an elder in training, so I'm training to preach. I'm training to lead the church, training to care for God's people. As a husband, I am caring for my wife. And as a father, I want to protect and um, disciple my children, as I'm called to do. So that all being said is um, who you are always dictates what you do. And so in our passage today, there are two you are statements that God makes to you as a Christian. You are salt and you are light. Jesus, before this sermon, that he's the one preaching this sermon that we are trying to preach sermons on, which is super difficult. Um, because he's the greatest preacher that ever lived, and we're supposed to preach a sermon on his sermon. Difficult. So he's been talking about some blessings and, and with that, the different characteristics of his kingdom. And what he's doing there is saying, this is the characteristics of people that are in my kingdom. This is what they look like. This is what they do. Now we get to the point where he says who you are. And so not only am I trying to preach a sermon on the greatest preacher that ever lived, I'm trying to preach on his illustration. So give me some grace. I have two points. Um, with two points only, they are, you are salt, be salty, you are light, be bright. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. So you, as a Christian, those called by God, those that accepted God's grace, are salt. Now, what are the uses for salt? What does this mean for us? There's three things that I want to point out. Salt brings flavor, which means you're bringing out the good. You're also contributing to making things better. You're also provocation, which means you're also provoking thirst. And also you're preserving, which means you're stopping, slowing down, decay, and also changing things. So the first one, flavor. You see things in the culture and that you can say that God affirms and loves, and we affirm and love them as well. We look out. And look at good, and we affirm it. We say yes and amen. A couple things that are, I'm pointing out, virtues that result in action. Virtues by themselves aren't that great. Virtues in action, we affirm. Equality. 
We affirm equality because of the Imago Dei, meaning everyone made in God's image, every human being, despite of life stage, money they make, color of their skin, where they're from, what language they speak, size, age, is made in the image of God and equal of all value, equality. We affirm it. Amen. Bravery. We love hero stories, and we should. God loves heroes as well. When we see heroes that are acting brave and and doing what they're supposed to do, we affirm that and say yes and amen. Generosity. We love when rich people are giving away their money. (laughs) Love it. We love when NBA stars and movie stars are, especially when they're starting schools and helping the people that are less fortunate. We affirm that and say yes and amen. Commitment and loyalty. Anytime we see that, we say yes and amen. The virtue of love. We see that and we say yes and amen. Some of the biggest ways I think that we see this and we can actually come alongside culture is in the love, enjoyment, and use of nature and creation. So stuff that we can go out and do, we go hiking, we go camping, we go fishing. Some of you guys play sports, not me, but you get after it. Watching sports, again, not me, but you go ahead, do it. Going to the lake, riding bikes, lifting weights, because Sean's here surfing and looking at the stars. So this is all things that we can go and do stuff with culture, and we say yes and amen. This is all good stuff because they eventually point to our good God. We'll get to how that provokes us to talking about him. But we should be living in a lot in our way in culture where we see everything good and we actually say, yes, we should be doing that. That's good. Now, the next point in this flavor is that we're supposed to be contributing to culture. Now, this wasn't going to be one of my points. Um, if some of you guys know me, I have a theological view that the world's getting better, that the Christians win in culture, and we're actually supposed to be the forefront of that. Um, Now, I'm not up here to preach my opinion. I'm supposed to preach the word, but Kyle told me not to shy away from this point, so it's kind of his fault. (laughs) Here we go. Christians are supposed to be the absolute forefront of all culture, making the world better, good, and right. This is our goal as salt in the culture. We've always done this. We should be doing it now. Historically, we've done this. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, writers, right? If, the, if Hollywood has made movies about your books, you've, you've impacted culture. A couple quotes. Francis Bacon. Oh, sorry. We're gonna, we'll get to him in a minute. Bach, he, he writes this. Where there is devotional music, God is always at hand with his gracious presence. Now, Bach's a famous composer. So he loves God and wants music to be known. So what does he do? He writes a bunch of music. Music that we still study today. Music that people still listen to today. And at the end of everything he writes, he writes this little phrase. Solo de gloria. All glory to God alone. So he comes in to culture, does his beautiful art, and then says all this goes to God's glory. And the world goes along with it. Like, we're supposed to be doing this. Francis Bacon, great name. Love Bacon. He says this, God, in fact, has written two books, not just one. Of course, we're all familiar with the first one he wrote, namely Scripture, but he also wrote a second book called Creation. So what does Francis Bacon go do? He creates the scientific method. 
science, Christians. It's okay. We should be doing it. It points to God's creation. A couple other guys here. Galileo says, God is known by nature in his works and by doctrine in his revealed word. Isaac Newton, he who thinks half-heartedly will not believe in God, but he who really thinks has to believe in God. So that's a scientist saying, if you're going to even think, because God gave you the grace to do it. All of thought is God's thought. All of truth is God's truth. We don't shy away from culture, inventions, science. John Calvin, I'm not going to quote him. We often do. But he is actually the father of modern democracy. So John Calvin, though he wrote a bunch of theology, he also wrote the outworkings of how theologically government should work, politics should work, and what do we have now? Democracy, because of his writings. You enjoy democracy? We thank Christians for it. Samuel Morris, he says this, Education without religion is in danger of substituting wild theories for the simple common sense rules of Christianity. So what does Samuel Morris do? Well, you might know Morse code. He made that. He also made the means by which it's also communicated, the telegraph. And when he wanted to communicate the very first telegraph, what does he use? He uses Numbers 2323, what hath God wrought? And some other people thought it was a really good idea to do telegraphs, so we ended up doing one from here to Europe. And what was the first one? The first one was, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will towards men. Christians were at the forefront of culture, pushing forward inventions, science, and I'll get into education. Princeton, Yale, Harvard, all started by Christians. Princeton's motto, under the protection of God, she flourishes. Yale, light and truth. Harvard's old motto, it's not that anymore, but it used to be, truth for Christ and the church. We are supposed to be pushing forward education. If you're a teacher, thank you. If you homeschool, thank you. If you send your kids to private schools, thank those kids, uh, the teachers there as well. We are supposed to be at the forefront of these things. So we're drawing out things, being salt. We're also contributing to culture, sciences, to art. Now, I was talking to a guy, Isaac, in between. He also pointed out that um, the abolition of slavery in Europe and America was pushed forward by Christians. This isn't the social gospel. This is the gospel actual realized. It has implications on all of life. So as we're doing this, as we're pointing these things out in culture, as we're affirming it and contributing, what we should be, do, be doing is provoking people to thirst. So my next one is provocation. We live in such a way in word and deed that people want to know and love our God. So we live in a way not to make Christianity look sexy, good, or anything more awesome than it actually is. Let's remember verse 12 that we went over last week. It's in persecution that we do these things. It's in adversity that we show the love of God. It's in adversity. How we act in adversity is actually provoking people to know, why do you, treat, why do you live like that? When we show our brokenness, it's because Jesus is our wholeness. 
When we show our longing for something better, we know that he fulfills. When we hurt, he heals us. When we are in need, he provides. And even when we want, he gives. When we cry out, he comforts. When we stress, he gives us peace. And when we're depressed, he's our joy. Are you living this way as salt to the world? See, we provoke people not in our strengths, but in our weaknesses. As Christians, we boast in our weaknesses because when we boast in our weaknesses, Christ is made strong. We live this way so people will want to know about our God. And as we're doing this, we come face to face with things in culture that we aren't supposed to affirm. We actually need to stand up against. So the next point is being a preservative. And we got to remember being a preservative is the main point of the way that salt was used in Jesus' day. So instead of refrigeration, there was salt. So instead of um, throwing it in the fridge, you had to salt it up. And then it, it doesn't make it last forever, but it slows down to the decay. This is what we're called to do as Christians. This means simply uh, using all of our time, resources, and efforts we can use to bring in relief to, lessen the effects of, or write out end some stuff. Things like this, illness. Some of you guys have taken up medicine because what do you want to do? You want to lessen the effects of, give relief to, or out of, write out end illness. That's why hospitals were started by Christians. Hunger. This is why we give money to people that feed people, because we want to outright end hunger. Thirst. There's a reason why we're drilling wells in South America all the time. People are thirsty, and we want to give them water. This is why we are giving to organizations, and outright we're trying to help orphans and widows, something that Jesus told us to do a lot. So we do this. We help them. We can do whatever we can. We take them under our wing. We adopt them if we can. Racism. As Christians, we're called to bring relief to, lessen the effects of, and I would say outright end it. But first, we must end it in the church. Sexism. Despite your gender, you are welcome here. We should be looking towards lessening the effects of bringing relief to and outright ending the murder of the unborn. Broken families. Addiction. Human trafficking. The exploitation of women. Abuse both physically and sexually, so and emotionally too. All matters of injustice, Christians should be at the forefront of bringing relief to and preserving the right way to be. Now, we could get overwhelmed with this, thinking we have to start a global movement, some large campaign, but what does the scripture say here? That you are the salt of the earth. This is a ground-level attack. This is in your region, in, the way, in where you're closest to, you're being salt. And the warning comes like this. Next part of the verse. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled under people's feet. Now, Jesus isn't, ta- isn't teaching us chemistry here, but the principle is very true. That salt is one of the most stable things in the earth. 
Whether you believe that the earth is millions of years old or thousands of years old, we can debate that later. It doesn't really matter. It means that salt hasn't lost its taste since the beginning of our world. Around for a long time, it's stable. So then how does salt lose its saltiness? Well, the only way I could really think of is if a foreign substance comes in and dilutes it. If instead of it being the acting upon agent of the other thing, that thing is now diluting it and being acted upon this. So a quick thing is like, I would never drink salt water from the ocean. I would easily drink a little bit of salt in water. Basically Gatorade, electrolytes. See, the salt water would make me sick because it has all the effects of the salt, but watered down salt, I'm not going to feel anything from that. We've deluded ourselves, guys, when we have taken on the culture's view of things. We've deluded it. We've done this also when we are hypocrites to our culture. When the church divorce rates are the same as the world, we have lost our saltiness. When we are still killing our babies at the same rate, we have lost our saltiness. When we do not love our families well, when we exploit as a church the weak and the poor, we are losing our saltiness. When we marginalize people that don't look like us, people from different cultural backgrounds, we are losing our saltiness. And when we don't view the family and children as a blessing, we lose our saltiness. Do you feel trampled under the foot of people as we've lost our saltiness? Charles Spurgeon said it like this. If you know me, you know I was going to get to him eventually. I believe that one reason why the church of God at the present time has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Now, that was in the late 1800s. How more true is it now? Church, have we lost our saltiness? And part of our losing our saltiness is because we're not living into the way that God has designed us to be. We're not doing what he called us who we are. We are this salt. We're not to go be, not to go try to be. This is who we are as we go. The church as a whole needs to come back to the foundation of God and his word as a foundation of life and be who we are called to be. This reminds me of Buzz Lightyear. So Buzz Lightyear, when we first met him, he was a space ranger. He was so off into the galaxy trying to save the planet, they didn't realize and they didn't know he was just a toy. But once he realized who he actually was, you could see um, he actually flourishes in the community around him. When he realizes actually who he was created to be, who he actually is, he can be a hero, a leader, and actually we have two more movies where he proves it. But it's all because of he realized who he was. So you are salt. Be salty. As salt, that means you are an influencer. You will either be influenced in this world or you will be an influencer. Be an influencer. Take your calling seriously where you are in life. So what does that mean? As vocation, if you're working, you're working an honest job. You're working your honest hours. If you screw up, you own it. You come to your boss when you need help. You don't try to act like you got it all together. At home, some of you guys are stay-at-home moms, parents. Um, this looks a little differently, but there's no excuse not to be in the world. So here you are being salt to your children. You're also preserving um, a lot of stuff that your children um, 
I don't know. I'm trying to stay. Um, so at home, what you're doing is actually doing this as a salting, preserving work with your children. You're also in your neighborhood doing the same thing. So you're home. Your neighbors could be home. Um, you are supposed to actually be neighborly to those people as you're at home. If you're unemployed, through your adversity, be salt. Through that hardship, are you looking for a job? Be salt. Have people actually ask you, why are you not freaking out? And tell them, because God will provide. If you're retired from vocation, you are not retired from Christianity. That is not a thing. You don't get to do it. There's no out. (laughs) This means that, yes, you worked hard, and I thank you for that. This also means you might have some more time on your hands to where you can actually be the hands and feet of Jesus to the people around you. Please do that if you're retired. This also means in your marital status to be salt and light. If you're single, and single is engaged or dating, it's still single. This means saving yourself still for marriage. This means being not the same as what the culture tells you to be doing. This is not living in the same way that the culture tells you to live. To be salt and light. We'll get to that. If you're married, love your spouse. Protect your marriage. If you're divorced, don't talk crap about your ex. Be salt in a way that, that will ask people, like, you've gone through this. Um, walk me through it. Why is it different than other divorces I've seen? Why is it not as ugly? If you're widowed, I just want to say, like, I realize that's really a, a hard thing to walk through. And I've seen many widows and widowers in this church, be true salt and light to where if I ever had to go through that, that's the first people I would go to. Thank you. So the next, next little bit we'll get to is like, so since we're all living this way, how then if we're preserving and bringing flavor and drawing stuff out, contributing, it's also like, what do we need to do? We need to shed light on some stuff as well. So verse 14, you are the light of the world. So you, again, Christian, Elect of God, called by God, accepting of his grace, are light. So what does light do? Light does two things I'm going to point out. It's attractive. It illuminates. It pushes back darkness and exposes. First thing is it's attractive. Has anyone ever looked at your life like a deer in the headlights and just ponder about what's going on there? Is your life any different from the world that people would actually look at it and be like, I don't, I'm just drawn to this? In darkness, would people run to you because your life is different? Are you the light of the world? If your light be bright. And if people do come to you, I want to point out that you're supposed to be illuminative, like the light is. Are you able to bring the gospel and speak on all of life with scripture verses or biblical principles? So I know that some people, if you code that, if they come to you, they don't want you to quote a verse. But can you give them a biblical principle on the verse? Do you believe when the scripture says that Jesus' words are a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, the light to illuminate which way we should go? Or Psalm 16, that God makes way makes known to us the way of life, and in his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Can you illuminate this to other people? 
Are you willing to speak up using scripture and principles based on scripture? Are you living as God's word being your foundation? Or are your values, your morals, your ideas based on a human political policy, a cultural standard, a personal preference, a personal fear, a personal bias, all which are subject to change? Or is it on the word of God, the foundation that never changes? See, when we, we are taking on our own human policies, our own human biases, the scripture speaks to that too. It says in Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. And we saw that in the book of Judges. We saw it for a whole book of the, in the book of Judges that when people are giving their own advice and doing what they think is right, it leads to terrible, terrible things. So illuminate, be in light, illuminate God's scripture to the people to give them the, the, the way, the beautiful way. And as that's going on, what's going, what's going to happen is you're going to illuminate some stuff and then light's going to come out and expose and push back darkness, my next point here. So you are an agent of light in a dark world. Do we take this seriously? Do you see how important this is? You are called by God to make darkness flee. Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. If you don't know, gates are defensive weapons. No one's ever said, let's go to war, grab your gate, let's go. No one's ever said that. Who's supposed to be on the offense according to Jesus, the church? And the gates of hell will not prevail. You are called to push back darkness. And as we push back darkness, it exposes. What's left behind as we're doing this is, is just all this mess, all this carnage, where we, where we can bring healing, both physical, emotionally, spiritually. And we don't run away from this. We, we engage. We dig in. Once the problem's seen, we have the solution, Jesus. Once we see it, we can then apply the antidote. The darkness must be pushed out, and then we can expose the hurt and push for healing. We fight against this darkness to do that. And I know it's too easy in a dark, dark culture to disengage with this, be discouraged. But let's remember that we are not called to strive to be this. We are not supposed to be trying to do this. This is who Jesus says that you are. Light. You are light. And light is the brightest in the darkest. So as it's darker and darker, the light looks more beautiful. When there are two opposing and opposite views, it's easy to make a distinction. If the culture is doing it wrong, the Christian is easy to say, this is my view and it's the right view. Let the light shine. So a way that we can do this is also saying if the culture has something to say and they actually don't have the true foundation to make that claim, we actually have to call that out. So my example is the Imago Dei doctrine. All people everywhere are made in the image of God. Therefore, they are worthy of all dignity, value, and worth. They get it right away. Now, if someone who believes that we are just protoplasm acting on protoplasm or atoms acting with atoms and this whole universe is random, 
where's the value in that? Where do you get your foundation for value if it's all an accident? That's a Christian view, the Imago Dei. That's our foundation, and you don't get to stand on it. That's something we get to call out. We are a city set on the hill. Verse 15. Or end of verse 14. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in, all in, the, all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you are a city on the hill. You cannot be hidden. Now, if we did this whole basket thing and, and covered our light, and say the lamp was here and the basket's here, who's that shedding light on? Me. I'm being selfish with my light, using it for my own good, and it's actually very prideful because if the light's only exposing me, you're going to see all my flaws. But if the light's shining outward, we can then point to God as the one who does all good. So we put, if we actually did this basket, two things are going to happen if I put a basket over a flame. Number one, that light's going to go out because it's going to suffocate. Number two, like R.C. Sproul points out, uh, it's going to light on fire. So as I'm being selfish with this light, it's going to light on fire, the basket will light, and it just shows how much selfishness is actually self-destructive. Pride always comes before the fall. And we're supposed to be doing good works, just like verse 16 says not making ourselves the point of the works, making God the point of the works, and giving glory to him. This is, this is us working out of our salvation, not for our salvation. This isn't working to be approved by God. This is because we already are. Now we're called to be light, so we go and do. And all of this is just to say, you guys do this all the time when you walk into a dark room that you're about to clean. It's really hard to clean a dark room. So you switch the light on, exposing all the stuff that needs to be done. You go and can do it then. Now, there's still darkness in that room, but you got to go find it. There's still darkness, but where is it? It's pushed to the extremities of the room. And that's what we're called to do. We don't let darkness come out unless it's all the way pushed back in the corner. Let it be in the corner. If we can, we go expose it there too. A couple applications for this. Jesus talks about you being a light, your house being a light, and this being a city on the hill. So you, have we done an internal audit lately on ourselves to see if this light has permeated us? Have we let it expose us? Have we asked God to take the darkness in us and make it flee? We should. Are we attractive as light? Do people even want to be around you? Are you friendly? Would you have anything to say if they were to come to you? If not, we ask God that he would do that work in us. Now your household, is your home a home of light? Does the light of God come into your house and change it? Does your home look any differently than your neighbors? And I, and I mean that in part physically. Does it look beautiful? God commanded Adam and Eve to tend the garden and keep it. That command is never taken away. Garden your house. 
make it beautiful. And then if your neighbor ever asks you why it's beautiful, you say, because God, it makes everything beautiful, and I'm a gardener. Uh, my friend Carlos, I'm thinking about this now, I just got to do this a while ago. He's uh, pruning a tree, and his neighbor asked, well, you seem to know what you're doing. And he's like, well, I'm just doing what Jesus told me, <laughs> prune trees. <laughs> and he's able to talk to his neighbor because of that. So that's physically also is your house, even a house of light to where your neighbors would want to come there and ask questions about Jesus. Are you actually a place in the neighborhood that's safe, a place of refuge for anyone who wants to come in? Is your home like this? Or is it just darkness that you put on a face when you come here? Is Jesus the king of your house? Is his law and his gospel practiced and preached there? And I got to be honest, I'm preaching to myself up here. I need help with this. I'm guessing I'm not alone. As a church, I'm going to say that we are supposed to be the city on the hill. We are supposed to be in the city, for the city, to be a light to our city. We collectively are supposed to be light to the city. Are we operating a way that non-Christians want to come here? And if they did, are we welcoming them in? Are we being intentional about this? Not to make it attractive as this, it's bells and whistles in here, but is it attractive because we actually have the words of life with us? And are we speaking them when it comes up? We should be a church that's striving for this, praying for this, wanting this to happen. Now, this is hard, and I understand it. Some of you guys feel like you guys are barely making it through life and your fire is almost put out. Jesus, later, talking about Jesus, Matthew, later in the book, he talks about Jesus and says, A bruise we read, he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He's not going to put out your light. He's going to fan into flame what you have. Jesus is going to restore you if you ask him to do it. Later in that verse, it says that he will do this until he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Are we being this light so that Gentiles, non-Christians, will come to Jesus? And again, let's not get bogged down by saying this is something we have to go do. This is something that we are. Why is this? This is because Jesus is our source of light. He is the light of the world that makes us light. Jesus being the light of the world comes into the world with no darkness in the world or in himself to come and save sinners. He is the ultimate source of light. This is what his earthly ministry has been called. Prophesied of him, it says that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. He is the light. He is the king of light. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his light. We look to him to do it. And just like how we raise up this lampstand in our houses to give light to all, this is what we're doing with Jesus. We're raising him up to give light to all so that he would come and illuminate. He would come and draw people in, exposing darkness and driving it out. Jesus says something just like this. In John chapter 12, he says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And it says that he's showing that he does this to show what kind of death that he's living or going to die. And then just in case you, have, you think that has nothing to do with light, um, the Pharisees, they question him about that. People question him. And then he says this. 
The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be sons of light. Jesus is saying upon his death that you can have these sons of light. And what's he doing? Drawing all people to himself. So what does Jesus do in his life? He, he, he lives a perfect life on our behalf. And then when he goes to die, where does he go to be lifted up? He goes up to Jerusalem, the city on the hill. And not even, that's not even high enough. So he goes up on a mountain there. And he goes up on a cross to die for all of our sins. And he's buried and dies. Dies and buried. But then he raises from the dead, and what does he do? He ascends into heaven. He's now in the highest place of the highest time with the highest name, drawing all people to himself. Jesus is our light, and we reflect his light. Now today, Jesus is offering the light to you. Are you going to take it? The light is among you today. Are you willing to accept it? Jesus is offering himself for you. Will you accept it? Because we can go out through life and, and, and view all these false lights that are actually darkness. They're all false hopes that actually break their um, promises, false promises, a false kingdom that are, that's are always shaken, a false heaven that we can never actually get to, and a false savior that is overbearing. But that's not our light. Jesus, the true light, is a true hope that, that we can always trust. A true promise that never lies. A true kingdom that will never be shaken and always is moving forward. A true heaven that we will actually get to. And a true savior who's done it all for us. So here's my challenge in this, guys. Here's what I want you to go and do. Go and be. Salt and light are not useful unless they're applied. Salt does no good in the salt shaker. Light does not, no good if it contained itself. The only reason why you guys see anything, the only reason why we see anything is because our eyeballs are actually reflecting off the light. Light does good as it comes out. So go out and be who you're supposed to be. And another thing there is it's, this is communal. One little grain of salt hardly does anything. But a whole mess of salt, that'll do something. Community. Is what we go after. And there's a reason why we don't buy little flimsy flashlights. We buy like the 10,000 light bright ones. Because they do work. They expose. So we're called to go out together and be salt and light. So just imagine this. What our life, our family, and our neighborhood, our city would look like if we actually went and did this. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you have sent Jesus, the true light, to call us light called us out of darkness that we can then serve his kingdom. God, I ask that you would help us be who you created us to be. And in your name we pray, amen.